This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at WorkingForestsInitiative.com. The more diverse America is getting, and it's getting more diverse, it's getting more ideologically diverse, it's getting more ethnically, racially diverse, more religiously diverse, that increasing diversity is incompatible with increasing centralization of power. Because what that does is it raises, in very real power terms, the stakes of each and every national election. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is David French. He is a senior editor at Dispatch, a columnist at Time. He's a co-host of the Advisory Opinions Podcast, an Iraq veteran, a, a, a longtime lawyer for uh, Christian conservative causes, and the author of a new book called Divided We Fall, which tracks some of the uh, polarization literature that you'll be familiar with if you've listened to the show, but but takes it in a very different direction, which is around the fear and to him, really, the possibility of secession. And then what might be an answer? And and, and David and I, you will hear in the show, uh, David and I come from very different uh, political backgrounds and ideologies. We collide a bit on what the answer is here, but but he wants to look towards a renewed federalism, um, a sort of allowing of states and regions to really go their own way, and a recognition that in a country this polarized, trying to do ambitious federal governance might be straining the bonds that hold us together so intensively that they will snap. Um, to me, that's a very pessimistic reading of the situation. I'm rarely the optimist on a show, but uh, in this case, maybe I am. But I always enjoy talking to David. It's his second time on the show, and uh, I always appreciate his perspective uh, quite deeply. So as always, my email, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is David French. David French, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So you opened the book with this really ominous line that it's time for Americans to wake up to a fundamental reality. The continued unity of the United States of America cannot be guaranteed. Yes. What the hell, man? <laughs> well, you know, I thought, Ezra, of, of all people, uh, you would read that line and think, oh, I think I can understand where he's coming from uh, almost immediately. The reason I say that is because as you've written a lot about, and I really loved a lot of your writing about this, we are not just sort of drifting apart as a people. Uh, in many ways, we're almost sprinting apart as a people. And this is something that's been recognized for a long time, this concept of negative polarization or negative partisanship, that I am a Republican. I'm not a Republican, but let's say if I was a Republican, I'm a Republican, not so much because I love Republican ideas, but because I 
strongly dislike or sometimes even hate and fear Democrats. And or I'm a Democrat, not because I necessarily love all Democrat ideas, but because I might hate and fear Republicans. And there's been a lot of literature and a lot of lived experience about how much we're moving apart. And my my simple proposition is you can't do that indefinitely. You not cannot continue to move apart indefinitely and stay together as a country. There's not some sort of magic elixir that keeps America united. There has to be some sort of fundamental, at the bottom line, some sort of fundamental shared tolerance, some sort of shared regard for each other, some sort of shared sense of what this country is and should be. And the extent of the polarization just started to really alarm me. You go in this book somewhere I didn't go in my book. You go right. into the question of secession. Yeah. And you believe that we are beginning to experience the conditions or near to experiencing the conditions that would make secession from either a group of blue states or a group of red states plausible. I tend, when I read arguments for secession or arguments about secession, to discount them. Every so often you'll read things about, you know, California breaking into six parts and leaving the right. country or something. Tell me why I'm wrong. Tell me why I should see secession as a real threat or possibility. Well, I'll, I'll be totally honest with you. I, when I was writing this book, when I was imagining the scenarios for secession, I was the, the most nervous about this because people will listen to you when you say we're coming apart. People will listen to you when you say we're increasingly alienated from each other and we hate each other more and more. But the instant you mention that this could have some sort of really ultimately severe consequence, there's an almost re reflexive rejection of that. But what I started to do is I began to look at, you know, sort of the two secessions, previous American secessions. One is, of course, the Revolutionary War. That was a secession from the British Empire. And then you had the Confederacy, a secession from the United States. And there were some common strands there. And one was this, you know, this notion that you have a geographically contiguous area that has sort of a sufficient sense of itself and a sufficient independent culture that it believes is fundamentally under threat. So you you have a culture that is a sense of shared culture and it's fundamentally, you view, view it as under threat. Of course, with the Confederacy, what they were viewing under threat was the continued viability of slave power. So this this book is not relitigating the cause of the Civil War. It's saying that the shared culture of the Confederacy centered around slavery. It believed that the long-term viability of slavery was under threat. But there was something else that was needed. It wasn't just that you have these big geographic areas that have sort of this shared sense of danger. And that's something that we see all around us all the time when you talk about red America and blue America and the coasts and the heartland. And what was needed was to really set the spark was not just a sense of our culture is under threat or our political culture is under threat, but something is tipping over to where our lives are under threat. You know, so you had the British regulars quartering in people's homes in Boston and then marching out to raid the surrounding countryside. And there's this just really powerful part of um, Battle Cry Freedom, the McPherson book that's just, you know, phenomenal single volume history of, of the Civil War talks about how the South had whipped itself into this frenzy believing that it was in imminent danger and that abolitionists were trying to, to foment a virtual genocidal kind of slave rebellion. And so you had this sense of shared geography, shared culture, and a sense of mortal threat that together made the unthinkable thinkable. And my essential proposition is we have in many, we have regions where you have the shared geography and the shared culture, but we don't yet have the sense of mortal threat. 
or the total loss of confidence in, in democracy, but you can see it. <laughs> you can see it emerging. And, and so that's why I, I wrote the book in part to say, we just can't assume everything's going to be okay and continue to behave as if, as we're behaving when the way we're behaving is making the unthinkable eventually thinkable. I was struck by what kinds of secessionary scenarios you felt were plausible. And, and, and as what you just said uh, signals, yours really revolved around violence, political violence, mm -hmm. policies that are driven first by a, an effort to address violence. So say in, in the case of your Cal exit, California exit scenario, gun control um, after a, a mass murder, in the case of your more Southern red exit scenario, you have uh, what's functionally a, like a not, it's an effort to arrest a wayward Republican governor that ends in uh, a political murder. Ends in violence, yeah. And ends in violence. And what struck me about that is that when I worry about this, when I worry about where we could go, I see something actually much more directly nearby, which is a legitimacy crisis. Mm. I see a uh, election coming that has the possibility to end in a scenario where neither side will accept the legitimacy of the outcome, or one side won't accept the legitimacy of the outcome, uh, right. depending. And that there's not really going to be a way to resolve that. We don't really have a way to resolve it. Now, we we do in the sense that we have two parties in this country, and if both parties act responsibly, but that is not, I'll be, I'll, I'll, I'll give voice to my own partisanship here. I have not found the Republican Party has been um, all that responsible around reining in some of what their base wants recently. And so <laughs> my my version of this is, what if we have an election where it looks on election night like Donald Trump won, the mail-in ballots begin coming in, they slowly begin overturning that, but there's an effort to disqualify a bunch of them. And then soon enough, you have a situation where the two sides think they've won and the other side disagrees. Yeah. If I had been writing the book starting in July, August of this year and was rushing it to print, my scenario would be a little bit different. Now, I don't think that we're at the conditions where something like what I'm talking about and warning about in the book is imminent. So I think that even in the worst case scenario of the current election, we would have potentially a constitutional crisis, but I'm not sure that we would have a constitutional crisis that severe. I don't think that all of the conditions have moved to such a state that we we could break apart in 2020. I'm I'm not saying that. But what I I agree with you completely. So let's take a scenario where, you know, we have this incredible uh polarization around mail-in ballots and you have Trump leading after election day on the counted ballots from people who voted in person and then, you know, it's close, but he's leading. And then as the mail-in vote is coming, you're noticing that a, a unacceptably high percentage of these mail-in ballots are being disqualified. I mean, we're already seeing disturbing levels of disqualification in North Carolina, right? And that's a swing state. And so an unacceptable number of these ballots are being disqualified. And, and to that extent, you're then creating a situation where there's a very real fear that we may not ever know who was supposed to have won the state and be the people we trust the least in life <laughs> are declaring the victor. And then a, a you have a Trump second term where, you know, let's say the Supreme Court ratifies the result, he's sworn in, and he begins to behave in a punitive way towards some of his political opponents or enge en, uh, engages an increasing number of 
executive actions that are, you know, not even, there's no even attempt to sort of pass them through Congress or even much less a regulatory process. And there would be enormous pressure on blue state governors to reject the authority of that administration, to just reject it out of hand, which would then create more pressures. And, and what we've found, I think, Ezra, is that we have very few people who are willing to take any risk at all to lower the temperature, if that makes sense. That everyone, if you're willing to take a risk, especially if you're in the, in the political activist world, people are willing to raise it. Very few people are willing to lower it. And, and that's, again, where I see that we're in a dangerous situation. And at least the last person on earth who's willing to lower the temperature happens to be the most powerful person on earth, and that's the president of the United States. I, I want to talk a little bit about what's underlying some of these pressures, but but I, I want to start there by talking about the 1960s, because a point I make in my book, I've made on the podcast many times, is that a space of optimism for me is that in the 60s, we had more political violence, we mm -hmm. had more fundamental issues that were being fought over all at once. We also had more war, we had a draft. I mean, there's a lot um, uh, happening. And my fear is that uh, we had a political system that was better able to find consensus in than we do now. So if you begin to have something more like the 60s now, you could have a real crisis. I'd say in many ways, we have begun to have that. Um, this has begun to feel more like 68 than it did a couple of years ago. But you have a really interesting discussion in the book, making a point I hadn't thought of, about why what happened in the 60s didn't lead to fracture. Um, can you talk through that? Yeah. Well, when the, the short answer is that in the 1960s, you had you didn't have the same kind of red and blue dynamic that you have today. Violence was um, scattered around the country, more serious. It was definitely more serious than it was than it is now, but it was scattered around the country and you had the political, but you had the political conditions that existed for a major, a strong majoritarian rejection of that violence. And so, you know, moving from 68, which was a close election, into 72, which was a landslide, 76 close, 80 landslide, 84 landslide, 88 landslide, you had a much greater sense of a common political culture that maybe perhaps some radicals were challenging and that radicals were contesting with violence, but that common culture still existed and the ability of the people to sort of say, I'm going to, we're going to, in large majorities, we're going to support candidate A over candidate B. Whereas now there's a couple of things that are going on that are quite different. One is this incredibly polarized geographic and political separation that we have, where we don't have that ability to engage in that huge majoritarian rejection. And then also at the same time, we have a social media environment and a news environment that can and does essentially exaggerate or am exaggerate might be the wrong way wrong word amplify every single violent incident that occurs so whereas there might have been a mail bomb in des moines in 1968 and if you're growing up in kentucky you would never hear of it now if you're politically active and somebody knocks a maga hat off a kid's head in des moines in a burger king you immediately know about it in kentucky and are talking about how look at how horrible and intolerant they are. So you have very different geographic situation. You have a very different political polarization and you have a very, a much greater ability to amplify each violent act and amplify public knowledge of each violent act. And it creates, in my view, more instability. 
I think that geographic piece is really important. So your your book, as mine is, is very much about polarization. And it seems to me the form of polarization you're most worried about is the way political polarization has layered itself on geographic polarization, the way we split by yeah. density, the way we split by area, and then the way those splits become somewhat contiguous. Because a big part of your theory is that you need to eventually have a serious succession crisis, you need to have geographically unified uh, groups that want to secede. It would be very hard for, say, California and New York to secede together. <laughs> right. They're just too far apart from each other um, to, to, to form one nation with the rest of America in between. But California, Washington, and Oregon, or you know, um, a southern, you know, a kind of Confederate Southern bloc, those are more plausible. And so in the '60s, we didn't have that as much because there was a lot more in internal uh, political division within states. You had much right. less of state political stability, but but now that's really changed. Yeah. You know, and, and one measure why you can see it's changed is because we focus so much on, on national politics and national politics really, really matters. But where you can see the depth of the polarization or in what are, and I, I lay this out in what are called trifectas. In other words, where there is essentially one party rule in a state. And right now there are 21 Republican states and 15 Democratic states that have this trifecta rule. And trifecta is you have the upper house, the lower house, and the governor's mansion. And the total number of people who live in trifecta states is almost 80% of all Americans if you when you look at the actual numbers. But but you you look at it, it's not an even just it's not a random geographic distribution. <laughs> And so you'll have this one party rule and then you begin to overlay these other factors. So, for example, America is a secularizing nation, as we all know, but it's not secularizing everywhere at the same rates. And to such an extent that if you're a Christian where I am in middle Tennessee, the idea that America is secularizing is something you see from Twitter <laughs> or from the news. It is not what you experience in your day to day life. But if I were to move, say, to the Bay Area I would probably feel the secularization of America pretty keenly. And so you begin to overlay. It's not just how you vote in federal elections. I mean, it, to be honest, as somebody in the Bay Area, it really depends how many covens you belong to. <laughs> yeah, if I, you're going to feel lonelier in a coven in Middle Tennessee, uh, probably. But yeah, so, you know, it just layers upon layers upon layers. And one of the other things I talk about is how then this creates just very different cultures, everything from the sports you watch to the television you watch. And, you know, I kind of feel as for like a fish out of water because I live in a red state, but I have very blue state viewing habits, which means uh, at one point I almost felt like I could speak Dothraki or High Valerian. I watched so much Game of Thrones, but there is a real cultural divide that goes along with the political divide, that goes along with the religious divide, and we're clumped together. This is sort of the logical outcome of you know the, the Bill Bishop concept back in 09 of the big sort, and we've just kept sorting. Yezra Klancho will be back after a short break. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 
Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. So here's where you and I begin to diverge. And we were going to have an event at South by Southwest about my book that I was super excited for. And then the world got overwhelmed by a virus and that ended. But but I want to I want to put our books into tension now because we tell a somewhat similar story about the way we've had this polarization of mega identities is layering on of ideology and geography and, and and race and religiosity. But then we go in pretty opposite directions, actually. My view is that the closest thing we have to an answer to this is to small d democratize the country, to make sure that the, the mm-hmm. government better reflects the public will and that it can act on the public will. And you sort of say the opposite, that you want to see us move in a more pluralistic and very importantly, a more federalistic direction, Right. that you want us to remember what James Madison said. The book is dedicated to James Madison about how to balance factions against each other. So tell me about those two solutions. Let's begin with pluralism. What is it and and, and how does it differ from what we have now? Here is my one of my fundamental assertions is that the more diverse America is getting, and it's getting more diverse, it's getting more ideologically diverse, it's getting more ethnically, racially diverse, more religiously diverse, that increasing diversity is incompatible with increasing centralization of power. Because what that does is it raises in very real power terms the stakes of each and every national election. Well, I want to repeat that for me. Increasing diversity is incompatible with increasing incompatible centralization. With okay. So in other words, if the more different California and Tennessee get, the higher the stakes of the presidential election or, you know, the Congress, the congressional elections get for both California and Tennessee. And so that one of my things that I, one of the things that I would like to do is to de-escalate national politics. And I have this chapter in the latter third of the book where I talk about how California single payer could be instrumental in helping knit our nation back together again in a kind of an ironic way by giving progressives the kind of government and the kind of healthcare system that they've long sought but have been unable to achieve because of the inability to influence national politics so decisively, you can begin to de-escalate that alarm. And there are many there are other ways that you can do that at the state level as well. And so my view is, you know, one of the interesting thing is so I'm I'm writing and and podcasting from a very, very red part of Tennessee. And if I had to identify what is the number one fear, what is a central fear of conservatives in the United States, it is a fear of majoritarian tyranny, that Democrats will take control, powered mainly by the hyper-urban clusters on the coasts, 
They will use that majority to bulldoze through the Bill of Rights and to bulldoze away our life and our culture. And so there's a fear of majoritarian tyranny. But when I talk to my friends on the coasts, they say, well, wait a minute, I'm living under a minoritarian government right now. That the way the American federal constitutional system is set up, that a minority of Americans can dictate how I live. And, and which it, there's in, in my uh, uh, Cal exit scenario depends on this notion of yet again, another Republican president has been elected with a, a minority of the popular vote and then uses that power to sort of bulldoze away California's sense of, per, of personal and public safety. And in that sense, I, my solution is, wait a minute, We've got to find a way for California to be California and Tennessee to be Tennessee. And I read your book and I, and I had just finished the, the draft of my book when I read yours, Ezra. And it's like, oh, this is going to be an interesting conversation because <laughs> you, you want to get rid of the filibuster, for example. And one of my scenarios, in my scenarios, the ending of the filibuster in very tense times is part of the fracturing scenario. Yes. I'm so glad you brought that up, in fact, uh, because it's something <laughs> that I've been thinking about. So, yes, you, you, Add in getting rid of the filibuster, something that leads to secession in both of your uh, uh, Im- Im- imaginations of how that might work. So I want to ask another question on federalism before we get into tensions with the filibuster. Because as you say, the theory that you're offering here is that if we had a supercharged form of federalism, that would de-escalate national politics. Right. And to preview what I'm going to argue here, I don't think there's really evidence for that. But I want to first understand what you mean by a stronger form of federalism, because as somebody who covers healthcare policy, my understanding of the situation is that we are not far from a world where California could, if it could figure out the financing and so on, build a single payer system or Vermont, much more to the point, which almost did, um, could. They were stopped because they couldn't figure out the taxation question around it. Now, you need some waivers from the federal government to, to, right. to make your Medicaid funding work. But particularly if you had a friendly government in, there's no real reason to think you couldn't get those. And there has been a fair amount of experimentation done on these issues. So what are you proposing here that is different than what we have now? Here's one of my concerns. So I I think when you use the word waivers, that was sort of the magic word. So here's what I think is a problem that we need to address that would help supercharge our federalism. So California single payer plan, if there is a Republican government in Washington, right now, the way in which people use federalism as a tactic and not a principle, in other words, we love federalism when you don't control Washington. You hate federalism when you do control Washington. And I use these examples of how the very, very federalist Republican Party has launched a frontal attack on California's sanctuary laws, which I think is very is ridiculously hypocritical. So my problem is that we are so negatively polarized that I'm worried that if California came and said, we have a financing plan for single payer, here's what we need from you, Congress. We need waivers that will allow a lot of that money that we are pouring into federal coffers to come straight back to California to finance this plan, that the negative polarization would be so high and the desire to own the libs would be so strong that nobody, that a, the Republicans would block that. No, that's too too federalist. <laughs> that's too far. We're not going to do that. And, and my argument would be that, wait a minute, no, if California, if folks living in the Bay Area and Berkeley and LA and everywhere else in California say, hey, we can create this kind of society that we've been longing to create for a long time. 
And by the way, what those waivers would do would be able to create a precedent for folks in, say, Tennessee to say, here's the healthcare reforms that we've been wanting that will create a better healthcare system in our state. You're going to be then be able to have in a very real way higher stakes at the state election in higher stakes state elections and lower stakes federal elections. But my concern, honestly, Ezra, is that for California to get what it wanted, it would have to have, there would just not be blue control of California. There would have to be blue control of Washington, D.C. And that is, in my mind, part of the problem, that no blue area can get what it wants unless it also, in very material and substantial ways, unless it also controls Washington. But, but I want to hear very specifically how you solve this problem, because I, yeah. I hear that you don't like the idea that California has to go hat in hand and ask for a waiver. But the reason you need to do that is that we pay into Medicare, we pay into Medicaid, yeah. we pay into VA benefits. Um, we would have to go and work through pulling apart revenue streams that are part of our integration with the United States of America. And something I, I thought sometimes reading your book is that there is a level of federalism here that can feel to me like soft secessionism, a level of federalism that can be almost giving up on whether or not we actually are going to be a united country. And in one of the ways is like if you can pull back any money you want as a state from anything you don't like, um, California doesn't want to fund defense because we think the war in Iraq is a bad thing. Like then you're getting into real, it's not quite nullification, but you're getting into some real tricky issues. So are you saying there shouldn't be waivers and that the federal government has no say in what California does? No, no, does? I'm like, saying there should be waivers. Yeah. Give me the real like change from the current situation here. So the current situation, as I believe it, and I probably wasn't clear enough in the last answer, the, per the current situation, as I believe, would be, let's suppose the people of California vote overwhelmingly that they want single payer. But to get single payer, for it to work, they have to, as you were saying, un unwind these revenue streams. So they go to Washington and ask for the waivers and they ask for the unwind of the revenue streams. The dysfunction that I believe that we have now is that unless there are also Democrats controlling Congress, the Republicans would not grant those waivers. They would not permit that because the idea that progressive California could become that progressive, they're not going to let that, they're not going to let the libs win, so to speak. What I would say is whether you're a Democratic or a Republican House and Senate and president, you should allow California to have those waivers and unwind those streams. And I hear your concern on a soft secession, but here, here's where I say, what is a healthy federalism versus what is an unhealthy federalism? So I think a healthy federalism is one that allows different states to govern according to their values on economic policy, on welfare policy, on, in many ways, climate policy to the extent that any given state can really truly chart its own course on things like power generation, et cetera, emissions, et cetera. But we're all in the same boat and, and have the same benefits of the Bill of Rights, this fundamental social comp compact. And the reason why I emphasize that so much is because if you look at where federalism failed in the past, and I fully acknowledge in the book that if you're listening to a federalist argument, you're thinking, uh, yeah, we tried that, it was called Jim Crow, or we tried that and it was called slavery. And I totally get that. But one of the, the fundamental flaws in earlier American federalism was it was a federalism of the Bill of Rights. If you cross state lines or if you're members of certain marginalized communities, especially if you're also across certain state lines, you didn't enjoy the blessings of American liberty. You just flat out didn't. And so I, uh, my idea of what sort of this fundamental American social compact is it's defined in the Bill of Rights. This is the fundamental baseline social compact. And beyond that, 
there's going to be a room for a lot of variation. Now, the interesting thing is, I think in real terms, if you grant states that much autonomy, you would see actually less diversity than you might think because certain fiscal realities would lock in. You couldn't be politics as posturing as much. You'd have to be politics as problem solving. But let me let me ask uh, Ezra, let me ask you this. So I don't think we're going to ultimately agree on federal versus state authority, but I do have a, a question. I do have an area where we might agree as something that could start to move the needle. And this is less power to the president, more power to Congress. That if you're going to de-escalate national politics, I think one of the baseline ways to do it is to de-escalate or to begin to diminish the power of the presidency. Absolutely. And you know how you could make Congress more powerful? <laughs> Are you abolish the filibuster? You could get rid of the filibuster. <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is going to be important to, to, to the argument I'm about to make. Um I agree with you, by the way, in terms of uh, moving power a little bit away from the, the president and, and towards Congress. Although I think in in practice what you're gonna end up with, I think that that is an argument people make that ends up being a misread of our system. It's a it's it's in the mythology of our system rather than how it actually works, because that is pretending that our system really still relies on competition between branches. And the fact of the matter is our system now relies on competition between parties that cooperate mm -hmm. and compete across branches. And that's a huge difference and a huge problem because we're not actually built for that. I want to go back to something about the Bill of Rights before we talk about Congress too much because uh, I don't want to miss this. Bill of Rights and climate are two things I want to, I want to hit before we move on here. One I think pretty obvious incentive of the kind of system you're describing is that it's going to create a huge amount of pressure to get the things you care about as a political party or a citizen or an interest group or whatever read into the Bill of Rights or read into the Constitution of the Supreme Court. So if the only way you can set a national standard is that the Supreme Court decides that what you care about, be that um, reproductive choice, which is um, fights over um, abortion figure very heavily into your sort of red state secession scenario, or um, you know, same-sex marriage gets read into the Constitution, obviously. Uh, but other things too, right? There's been a long effort on the part of liberals to understand some of what the Constitution is guaranteeing relating to uh, more economic guarantees. And so if the only way that you can ensure national protection for something is that you get five members of the Supreme Court to say it is in the Constitution, that's going to, uh, in some ways, that's going to really continue raising the stakes on our judicial politics, um, which are already pretty high. No, I, I agree with you. And and I'm when I when I write uh, solutions and and I talk about federalism, I don't I don't look at this from the standpoint of saying, well, this is the easy, obvious way. <laughs> I think of it as this is the difficult way that's still going to be filtered through all of the negative partisanship that besets us now. And you highlighted, I think, very clearly one of the risks, which is. If the Bill of Rights becomes at a premium, then how much are we going to try to jam into the Bill of Rights through the judiciary? And I do not have a great answer to that, to be frank, um, that I, I, I see I see this that is actually something danger. I want to ask you about one part of this, and I apologize for interrupting, but I want to add this to your to the answer you're giving me because both of your secession scenarios 
rely on something that is currently understood as constitutional. Um, gun control mm-hmm. in the one case, um, and it includes a, a Supreme Court gun control decision. So California wants to do something, the court sees as violating the Second Amendment. And then um, abortion, which uh, through the Roe decision, you know, has also been understood as as constitutional. And so I was struck that you have a federalist answer, but your secession scenarios wouldn't necessarily be uh, stopped by a federalist answer because these wouldn't necessarily be things that you could allow the states to experiment with to the extent they wanted to. So I think if you're talking about ending the filibuster, the circumstances of it matter a lot, or let's say court packing, the circumstances of these things matter a lot. And and if you're going to talk to individuals about like, what is it that, and not general members of the public, but sort of the engaged political class, you had a really interesting podcast about political hobbyists <laughs> and, you know, this sort of political hobbyist, super engaged political class gets extremely fired up about much more so than the sort of average voter. A lot of these very hot button culture war issues, such as gun control, such as abortion. And the reason why I said that these things would be so destabilizing is if you had a popular effort in these core red areas or in these core blue areas to solidify these core values of these areas, and then whether it's the majoritarian response of an immediate court pack uh, to respond to the, the to Red America or the um, minoritarian control of a plurality elected president uh, overriding California's restrictions in a time of real anguish and crisis, extreme, it's extremely hot button. So context of this matters a ton. Like, And under what circumstances are we engaging in dramatic legal change, such as ending a filibuster or court packing? I think those circumstances really matter a lot. What What is the condition of sort of the kindling? But yeah, I do think that the constitutionalizing of many of our debates is not entirely escapable in any scenario. I don't think there is a scenario truly where we can get past and through the constitutionalizing of some of these debates. But I think my answer on federalism is that on other areas that really, really matter, there can still be greater autonomy. So it's a matter of degree. It's not a matter of radical revision one way or the other. It's a matter of degree. Our country is built to under to have a to exist in spite and through a lot of fractiousness. And so we can never fully turn down the temperature here. But how can we turn it all the way down? How can we ameliorate? How can we moderate the temperature enough to sail through? And you know, 15, 20, 25 years from now, 30 years from now, we may have some sort of we may have cultural changes, we may have religious changes, we may have other changes that render this fractiousness kind of a thing of the past. But for right now, how do we moderate the temperature? And my best answer to that is we got to de-escalate national politics. We have to de-escalate the presidential election. And the other thing is that I talk a lot about is we have to reject illiberal authoritarianism as a mindset and a worldview on each side of the political aisle. Yes, Clan Show will return after a quick message from our sponsors. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seat of all your disappointments? A wasteland of unmatched sandpaper rough foot sleeves? Well, this spring, you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. 
Bombas socks have all kinds of features like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back, and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. In U.S. working forests or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. You mentioned climate a couple minutes ago, and I'm looking at my books on my desk, and one of them mm-hmm. is a book called American War by Omar el and that is also uh, a book about uh, an imagined secessionary crisis in America. It's fully fiction, um, unlike yours. It's a great book, um, and people should read it. But it takes climate as its central uh, engine. And so you have a, a situation in which America functionally bans fossil fuels. I'm doing the book a little bit of um, paraphrasing here. but And you have certain states that uh, rely on that for their economy or don't believe in climate change or whatever it might be, um, refuse, and you end up with a, an, an American civil war of, of sorts, and then things spiral out of control from there. But climate is a really interesting question. I mean, we're living here in, I can barely breathe the air where I live. Um, it's choked with smoke. Um, we're living through coronavirus, which is another uh, example of how much the problems we face don't care for borders. Mm-hmm. And so you have all these problems where allowing California to go one way and Texas to go another doesn't actually solve the problem because we both occupy the same country and then say for climate occupy the same world. So like in a in a in a truly federalist approach to coronavirus which is more or less what we've had and is part of the reason America is failing so terribly on this issue unless you're going to close borders to other states that are 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 approaching in a very different ways you can't do all that much and on climate if we have half of America adopt a climate change policy and the other half doesn't we have not adopted a climate change policy. We're just simply on track for for endless warming. So how do you think about those issues where the question is whether we will solve the problem and there isn't a state-by-state solution to the problem? Like either we will as a country decide we want to solve it or because of the ways in which we're all in this together, it'll go unsolved. Yeah. So um, a couple of things. One, I think, especially when you're talking about climate. So California is what, about the, the fifth largest economy in the world, if mm-hmm. it was... So what California does just as California does indeed matter. I mean, if the fifth largest economy in the world reduces emissions, emissions are reduced. And so it does matter. Now, the problem that I have, and I, and I totally, I totally understand what you're saying about, but it, it sounds to me a bit like, well, if one side or the other finally wins, there's a lot of stuff we can do, um, or there's a lot of stuff we should do. 
the problem that I'm saying, and one of the problems that I have, and one of the things that I say in the book is there's no real prospect for that. Um, and so when we're looking, and, and in fact, the effort to sort of say, okay, we're going to finally win, and when we finally win, we're going to implement these procedural changes that will allow us to implement the broad sweeping vision that we think will fix all of these very intractable and difficult issues that we are outlining. My argument is that that very effort continues to raise the temperature is not only impractical, it continues to raise the temperature dramatically. And the days of one party sort of being able to sweep away the other party, implement a vision and sustain sort of a political revolution for the time being don't exist. And so what do we do when that doesn't exist? And and that's where I think federalism, there's a genius to the federalist vision of the founders because of we, we often overlook the differences and diversity of the founding within its own terms and how difficult it was to knit together that kind of diversity, which is much less diversity than we have now. And so part of it is, you know, yeah, if you say, okay, we can solve all of this division if one side or the other wins, to me, that's saying more status quo, because one side or the other is not going to get a sustained victory. And the more that we accumulate power in the federal government, the more that we're going to raise the stakes and, and the national temperature, the more that we're going to see each election as the most important election of our lifetime, and the more that we're going to end up reinforcing and doubling down on negative partisanship. So yeah, I, I see what you're saying in the sense that, yes, what Texas does matters, just like what California does matters. And how are you going to have a unified approach to climate change without a unified country? And part of the point of the book is to say that very vision of saying, well, we're going to win to such an extent and then sweep through some of these checks that exist on decisive control by small majorities. We're going to sweep by them enough to have a sustainable sort of political transformation. That's what I say is the uh, that's that's like the illusion. That's the mirage. That's not that's not truly available absent much more substantial cultural change than we have right now. So I agree with half of that, exactly. <laughs> so one thing that I want to say to everybody, um, to, to emphasize something you said, if anyone thinks there's some chance that they're going to sweep aside a bunch of uh, majoritarian or minoritarian protections and then win a permanent victory in the political war, they are wrong. Right. Um, and that's just lunacy. And in fact, the bigger an agenda you have, almost the more surefire it is that you're going to lose power a couple of years after trying it out. But where I really disagree with you, like profoundly, is that the promise of more responsive majoritarian governance is not that one side wins and never loses power again. It's actually, in fact, exactly what many people seem to fear about it. The promise of legislating from different directions at different times, such that the American people then get to see if they prefer one set of policies to the other, and then parties have to adjust based upon their preferences. That instead of the only thing American politics is about is why you can't ever get anything done and why all of our problems endlessly go unsolved, it's actually about, okay, like Democrats did the Affordable Care Act. What did you think of it? Now you've elected the Republicans. Do you actually want them to repeal it? And do they feel they can survive if they repeal it? And if they do repeal it, what happens in the next election? The incentives of governance. Your book uh, is dedicated to James Madison mm -hmm. because you say he saw this coming. And I think the dedication to something may 
like, may we remember that you were right. Yeah. James Madison, I think, gets somewhat selectively quoted on some of this stuff. And so I want to read to you what he wrote about the idea of a supermajority requirement in Congress in Federalist 58 and, and, and hear why you think he's wrong. He wrote that some advantages might have resulted from such a precaution cannot be denied. It might have been an additional shield to some particular interests and another obstacle generally to hasty and partial measures. But these considerations are outweighed by the inconveniences in the opposite scale. In all cases where justice or the general good might require new laws to be passed or active measures to be pursued, the fundamental principle of free government would be reversed. It would be no longer the majority that would rule. The power would be transferred to the minority. So here you have the founding father most concerned with faction, who sees, in your view, what you see coming most clearly. And he thinks it would be very deleterious to have a government where you actually can have majoritarian rule because then you can't do anything. And that's just going to keep getting people angrier at each other. Well, why, why was James Madison right about part of this, but not the rest of it? <laughs> well, no founder was right about everything. But I think when I'm talking about James Madison, I'm talking about there's a quote that Lin-Manuel Miranda helped repopularize that George Washington loved that actually comes from the Bible. The quote is this, every man shall sit under his own vine and fig tree and no one shall make him afraid. And this was a, a, a quote that George Washington used almost 50 times in his correspondence, for example, writing to the Hebrew congregation of Rhode Island, where the question is, you know, what kind of role and what kind of place are Jewish Americans going to have in this new union? And I love that scripture. And I love that concept because to me, it's the heart of saying to different and distinct American communities that you will have a home in this land, that across different religions, across different races, across different cultures, you can have a home in this land. And so, yes, Madison, um, you know, that I think that's a very uh, effective and powerful quote, but he also was the principal uh, author of the Bill of Rights, which are extremely counter-majoritarian. But that's exactly the thing that frustrates me in this argument, which is we have all of these major counter-majoritarian protections. We have, take away the filibuster, which didn't exist when they created the Senate. We have more electorally generated veto players than any other advanced democracy. We're the only one with four. Nobody else has that. There is this feeling that if you just made it a little bit easier to govern, we would tip into tyranny of the majority when we wouldn't even usually be able to govern as a majority because you have staggered elections and divided government and a million and a Supreme Court and a hundred other things like this and a Bill of Rights. My argument here and, and the one I'm pushing on you a bit is that we have made it so hard to govern that we've broken the fundamental incentives of governance. We've broken the need for political parties to have an agenda that appeals to most of the country, to implement that agenda and let the country judge whether or not they liked it. And in that brokenness and in the fury that comes from seeing our problems go unsolved for so long, we just fight and we fight. And now the proposals begin to come that we're so unable to agree on anything, maybe we should just even stop trying and retreat back to just every state going their own way. And this feels to me like giving up to some degree on the American experiment, giving up on the ability that we came together as a country to solve hard problems and like be a light unto the world. I, I feel like I feel like we have lost too much faith in governance and we've become too scared of the idea that parties should govern and the public knows its own interests well enough to decide if they to make decisions about how that governance affects them. Instead, we let ourselves be trapped in the pre-governance phase where nothing passes and we just argue over why things don't happen. 
I do think that the decentralization is an argument that we should give up on the extent of the centralization that we've been engaging in since really the New Deal. Um, and then part of the reason why I say this, and, and you know, I, I think the phrase give, you know, the the phrase giving up, it's a very lo loaded and charged phrase. But early in the book, I say there's a couple of things that are happening as a result of the big sort. And one of them is the lock-in of this Cass Sunstein phenomenon called the law of group polarization. And I think this is a really central insight into our times. This the the Sunstein, and it goes all the way back to like a 1999 academic paper that he wrote. And essentially it says that when people of like mind gather, the common expression of their shared view grows more extreme. And so if you have clustering, if you have people clustering, they're going to start to move apart from each other because their common views are going to grow consistently more extreme. And one, this is one of the consequences we have of the big sword is that it's not just that we're divided, we're increasingly divided and we're increasingly geographically divided. And many of us then therefore look at the back and forth of power with an increasing level of alarm and fear because the entity that's going to exercise power the next time that they win is one that's increasingly separate and different from us. And I feel like we have to wrestle with that reality and it creates an enormous amount of fundamental visceral enmity. And, and that's one of the things that I react to when I'm talking about uh, de-escalation, that what is it that we can do about that fundamental visceral enmity? And you, you raise the Obamacare um, example. And I think this is a really interesting example of how this enmity is distorting our process. Obamacare, honestly, can we be honest, is a pretty modest healthcare reform. <laughs> it was not a sweeping uh, transformation in the American system. I mean, for somebody like me who's had uh, been fortunate enough to have employer-provided healthcare from start to finish, I didn't notice any change at all. For somebody on Medicare, you're probably not going to notice much change at all. And But the the level of enmity was so potent that even that modest change has ripple on effects uh, and this in the, filtered through this group group polarization where you know I live in in red America I would bet you that there there are people who probably can't really articulate two elements of what affordable care act did and are livid about it and are livid and so the one thing that I'm trying to say in this book is I feel like when you're talking about these democratization and, and national government, my pushback on it is it's not taking account of the full extent of the raised national temperature. And that that full extent of the raised natural, national temperature means that there is always for now going to be an extraordinary overreaction, even to relatively modest reforms. And, and I think the Obamacare example is a is a good example. Here's another one we, we talked about a little bit in sort of the green room. The weirdest thing I have ever seen in my life politically is this mask culture war. Um, I mean, you, you, you think about you have a respiratory pandemic that is killing people, almost 200,000 people as we get to the, you know, as we record this podcast, it's like 198, 199,000 by the world meters measure and a little bit less in other measures spread through the air. And you have a culture war over mask mandates, 
one of the most common sense governmental measures I can possibly imagine. And so therefore, you know, we're having these what would be democratic reforms that in a functioning culture and a functioning democracy would cause people to say, well, that's that's bad. I don't agree with it, but I'll try to run next time and reverse it. Instead, what we're saying is that's a catastrophe. America is ending. This isn't the country that I grew up in. This isn't the country I want to be in and acting accordingly. And I guess where we're missing each other a little bit is I don't have a real problem with a lot of what you talk about or as democratic reforms in what, what I would call a background of a functioning political culture. I think we've left that in the rearview mirror in many ways. And now what we have to is react to the dysfunction of the present political culture. And there might be a time, a generation from now, where things, it we start to knit ourselves together again. But right now, all of the impulses are pulling us apart rather than pushing us together. And that's why I put such an emphasis on the de-escalation. So one, I agree with a bunch of that. But but the part where I want to push, there are two great things here. I want to come back to the law of group polarization. But, but I want to say this, we're not missing each other on this. We both agree that the temperature is super high and our system and our political culture are dysfunctional. What I am arguing is that that dysfunction reflects ways we've set up the political system. We have created bad incentives and political culture is both upstream and downstream of the way the system works. So let's take Obamacare as the example. Let's put it into my more slightly, slightly, slightly more majoritarian universe. Um, <laughs> in 2009, the Democrats win. After winning, by the way, a huge victory in 06, in order to win control of the government, they have to win again in 08. I think that if you imagine a world where there hadn't been a filibuster and Democrats had won their two elections and gotten into power and passed, I would say in that case, a better version of the Affordable Care Act, and then Republicans had mobilized opposition to it, told people it was terrible, won elections based on that argument, and then actually repealed it as they promised to do or offered something in its place, um, which they could have done more easily in the absence of a filibuster since they wouldn't have had to use like the weird budget reconciliation rules. Then the American people would have this choice. They would see what a Democratic health care policy looked like and what a Republican health care policy looked like. And they would send a signal back to the parties in the aftermath of that about what they should look like in the future. And the parties, if they wanted to keep winning elections, particularly if we were a more small-D democratized country, would have to heed that. I think one reason the parties can be as far apart as they are, and, and as you say they are, David, is that they're often not playing with live ammunition. They can promise anything knowing they can't do it. They can say things that are just political fantasizing during campaigns and then say, oh yeah, it's the other party that kept us from doing what we told you we would do when we were campaigning. And so there isn't accountability in politics. There isn't information. There isn't a, like a loop of feedback that forces the parties to, at some level, govern more closely to the interests of the American people. Now, I obviously think this has afflicted the Republican Party much worse. And I think that's in part for the structural reason they figured out a minority path to power. Whereas if they had to win over a majority of the public, that would be a much healthier incentive system. And they would govern better as a result because they wouldn't be able to say, yeah, maybe we'll just win 46% of the two-party vote and still become uh, and still occupy the White House and the Senate. But either way, like that's my argument to you that our political culture is so bad, our temperature is so high in part because we have substituted symbolic fights over politics for real governance where the American people's lives are changed when different parties come in and then they make a decision 
that is actually more informed on which party they want. And and I think that would be better. I agree with a bunch of that. And I especially agree with the um, the argument that we're not fighting with live political ammunition. My colleague Jonah Goldberg has this great phrase to describe Congress. He calls it the parliament of pundits, where you know really the business of legislating is taking a back seat to the business of getting on the cable on the cable news hits. <laughs> and how you how do you get on cable news, especially on the right, is you know more and more and more inflammatory rhetoric. So I I'm I'm completely with you on that. Where I believe the 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 filibuster element of this is where I'm going to disagree. And look. I'm not one of these guys who thinks that, you know, this or that policy tweak ends America. My scenarios depended on the end of the filibuster as being an instrumental within a much larger context, like in a very specific context that's already extremely flammable. But I think what you'd end up having, unless you begin to address some of the larger issues of American polarization, is you, you even then, unless you had unified control, House, Senate, and and president, even then you're going to have an awful lot of, of gridlock, an awful lot of frustration. And you're also not going to address some one of the issues that we haven't really talked about that much about the geographic polarization, which is that most of us, or many of us, perhaps even most of us, now live in jurisdictions where our vote, frankly, doesn't matter at all. It just doesn't matter. I, I live in a place, I think my precinct went 72% for Trump. It's unified red control in Tennessee. It is uh, two Republican senators. It's an overwhelming majority of the House delegation. Our electoral votes are going to go for Trump. So long as I live in Tennessee and so long as this present polarization exists, my, my vote just won't even matter. That, I think, is deeply, deeply demoralizing to people, this idea that my vote doesn't matter. And I do think... You know, I think of getting rid of the filibuster as playing into the core fears of the right almost, I think only getting rid, only getting rid of, uh, or court packing could more precisely sort of play into some of the majoritarian tyranny fears of the right. But again, contextually, contextually, but no, I, I totally understand that where we are, what we need to do is have lawmakers who are not LARPing you know, sort of doing live action role play of a politician, but instead actual legislators. The shortest route to that, in my mind, is in a heavily divided country, but with a lot of political unanimity in the states, is to make the states the primary instruments of the policies that impact your life. Because that's where you're going to vote in elections that matter. That's where they're going to be able to take actions that matter. Let's just look, for example, at the, the complete fracturing, not just of the legislature, but the judiciary. So this is another layer here. So, for example, um, you know, a lot of people have complained about, uh, rightfully so, nationwide injunctions against some Trump administration policies. The right hates nationwide injunctions, but it forgets that it imposed nationwide injunctions through conservative justices on Obama regulatory policies. It's not like the nationwide injunction is only a right wing or a left wing tool that what we now have is a situation in which in the absence of legislation signed by a president or that can overcome a veto, which is very, very, very rare, you then have regulatory action that's subject to almost immediate injunction. We have layer upon layer where we not only deny states the ability to really make the kinds of reforms that the people want to live under in those states, we also have a situation of multiple layers of gridlock 
in the national government that's also a product of not just the system, but the division in the country itself. And so it's hard for me to figure out a way through the division of the country itself that originates at the top when the control for the top is much of the source of the division to begin with. And that a lot of these policies essentially become almost like condensed symbols of the perfidy of the other side. I mean, I go back to the mask uh, debate because the mask debate is a perfect example of how I think you've had Rod Dreher on your podcast before. Yeah, I've had Rod on. Yeah, yeah. He he talks about condensed symbols. In other words, that something is a symbol of what the other side wants. And so therefore you must oppose it. And I think masks became a condensed symbol of sort of the technocratic public health elite. So it had to be opposed. Mail-in balloting becomes a condensed symbol of democratic efforts to win a presidential election. And so it has to be opposed. And, and so I feel like Absent the de-escalation of national politics, a lot of these reforms will merely become, or proposed reforms will merely become yet another condensed symbol of the perfidy of the other side to be opposed with near unanimity, not on the basis of their merits, but on the basis of their origination, where they originate. And, and it's part of this incredibly profound dysfunction. So yeah, I mean, a big part of our disagreement here is, is I think that the reforms that you propose, many of the reforms themselves, even before they're enacted, they even before they result in a policy, will be seen as a dramatic escalation of the underlying culture war. Absolutely. There's no doubt about that. I mean, I will note on the filibuster that the last change to weaken the filibuster came from Republicans um, in order sure. to end the filibuster on Supreme Court nominees so they could put Neil Gorsuch on the court. Um, after blocking Merrick Garland. And so it's it's worth noting that um, Republicans may see doing anything to filibuster as an escalation. And by the way, Democrats had weakened it a couple of years before that. But this is this is a very bipartisan um, uh, progression we're in. But I, 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 as much as the only thing I care about in life is a filibuster, I'm, I'm not going to force us there the whole time. I do want to talk <laughs> about something that just came up, though, uh, which is the law of group polarization, because you spend a fair yeah. amount of time on that Cass Sunstein idea in the book. I think it's a super interesting idea, this uh, concept that when people are surrounded by like-minded folks, um, they end the entire group ends up pushing more in that direction. There's a, there's very, very powerful momentum to conformity. Something that I wonder about in a much more federalist structure my first thought when I imagined the world you were painting was, well, we should probably give people relocation tax credits. <laughs> and maybe that's like the worst technocratic view on what you're saying. But if what we're going to say is that, you know, the whole South can much more radically govern in a culturally and economically red direction, well, and as somebody who cares about the people who live there, who will be much more under the tyranny of a majority um, than they sort of are now, where things are more, uh, more, more like modulated by the by the diversity at the federal level. How do people get out? Like, if they need, you know, we obviously, you and I, very much disagree on abortion, but if people who might need to get dressed, like, how do they get out? Or people who might need health care, like, how can they, if they don't have the money to move, like, how do they move to? these blue states that are able to, to to grant them some health insurance. And without, I'm, I'm not actually asking about relocation credits. The, the question I'm asking you about here is that don't you worry in the world you're painting where every state goes its own direction in a much more intense way, 
the law of group polarization actually takes hold more, that um, all these states become more like themselves and more angry at each other and the horrifying situations they see um, in their counterparts and more afraid of how different the other states or other regions look from them. The sort of answer to things like the law of group polarization are, are things like intergroup contact theory, right? And you talk about right. some meetings you were in that were you know, about trying to bridge, bridge divides between folks. And one of the big lessons of that is that if you want to depolarize people, you need to get them working in a reasonable structure that is organized for this, but you need to get mm -hmm. them working on a shared project. You need them to try to do something where they have to cooperate to succeed. If we want to depolarize the country eventually, uh, which I, I'm not very optimistic we're going to do, it seems to me that having to govern together is a shared project, at least to some degree. The more we just let ourselves govern apart, it seems the further away from each other we will walk. And at some point, we're going to be so far from each other that coming back together become be, can begin to seem impossible. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I, I, can I just say that I agree with you on uh, relocation tax credits and from this we build? Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, you know, I, I do think greater mobility within the United States is a is a desirable uh, a desirable thing. But I, I I would I would say, and and also for people who belong to distressed communities, that uh, the ability to to move from a distressed community rather than sort of feeling stuck and limited. But that that's another that's another conversation. So the big sort is something that's underway. It's been underway for a while. And it's one of the reasons why we have the negative partisanship that we have. And it's hard for me to think of a public policy that reverses the big sort and reverses the effects of group polarization that go along with the big sort. And so therefore, I think that one of the reasons why I concentrate on federalism is what's the policy that accommodates the existence of the big sort and reflects the reality of group polarization in a way that can perhaps lower the temperature enough to where our differences become less reasons for uh, hatred and more sort of objects of interest and curiosity <laughs> um, that, oh yeah, California, California is just different from Tennessee. I, I love visiting there. Folks have, you know, they, they have a, they differ, a different outlook on the world and it's really fascinating and interesting to visit and enjoy it versus Oh my goodness! Those folks in California are going to run my state. They're they're going to dictate how I live. That that an accommodation of difference is a way to diffuse the potency of difference at an emo a very emotional and primal level. And and one of the things that we haven't talked about is a big part of the book is how do we deal with that emotional and primal feeling that we have. You know, and I don't know how it is in interacting with your neighbors out in the Bay Area or in, in, in California, but in interacting with my neighbors here in, in Red America, I have noticed a skyrocketing level of basic enmity, just basic enmity for their fellow Americans on the left. Very alarming. I mean, very, very alarming. In many ways, they're reflecting the the aggression of their leader, Trump, and maybe when, if the bully is knocked off his pedestal, then the bullyism that is infecting the movement and the enmity that is affecting the movement will begin to be ameliorated somewhat. But one of my deep concerns is, is over just enmity, just fury and just in anger. And, and what can we do on a very sort of personal level uh, to do that? And one of the ways, you know, and I want to emphasize, look, I, I don't, I, 
I want this book to have start a conversation in much the way that your book has started a conversation in important ways about these are hard, tough things to deal with. And these are my ideas that I present in all humility <laughs> and trying to uh, unring a bell, so to speak. But one of the things I'm very, very concerned about is this base level of enmity and that base level of fear and hatred. And what is it we can do about that? So on the policy level, there's a de-escalation element uh, that I try to uh, advocate through federalism. But on a personal level, one of the things that I talk about a lot is rediscovering some notion of tolerance, not in the sense of, hey, we're going to love each other, but in the sense of seeing each other's shared humanity. And that's where the civil libertarian in me is going to get back to the Bill of Rights. One of the things that I have found that works in bridging divides between people is a shared defense of our fundamental rights. So the idea that you and I might disagree uh, all day long on healthcare policy, but if somebody tries to silence you, to engage in punitive action, to limit your access, access to the public square, then I'm going to be right beside you uh, fighting for your rights as strongly as I fight for my fundamental rights. And I think that that interlocking, interdependent view of civil liberties, I think is very, very important to binding this nation together. And it's one of the reasons why I've urged a lot of my fellow conservatives in the response to police brutality is to, why don't you recenter yourselves, constitutional conservatives, as Bill of Rights Republicans? And that one of the things that conservatives have done for years is they emphasize amendments one and two, uh, you know, free speech, free exercise of religion, free of association, gun rights. And they've not so much carried them out. Uh, amendments four through eight, you know, due process, um, you know, right, the, you know, rights of representation, rights against, uh, pr uh, you know, firewalls against cruel and unusual punishment. They're just as much a part of the Bill of Rights. And so one of the things that I think a Bill of Rights focus does is it can begin to repair that enmity shoot through shared defense of fundamental civil liberties. And that might be the only part of the book that is a nod towards idealism, <laughs> whereas everything is is kind of how do we accommodate, how do we Im, uh, imperfectly as best as we can accommodate enmity. Uh, the idealistic element of it is perhaps in the shared defense of individual liberty and corporate liberty as well, we can begin to re repair those bonds of fellowship. And I just think I took your question and went, 17 different directions. <laughs> yeah, it's a podcast. That's what we're here for. Um, I, I want to, on that on that sort of spiritual note there, um, I have a lot of thoughts about the Bill of Rights question. And I think the reason a lot of Republicans who call themselves constitutional conservatives don't focus on those is that they're not motivated by the Constitution. Uh, but I think that would be a, a bigger and more different argument to make. One thing I want to do here, though, is I think one of the things that is helpful, uh, maybe not depolarizing, but but is can be a little bit unifying, is taking other people's stories seriously yeah, and true. and their fears seriously. Whether or not you agree with them, it's important to understand them. And my audience here leans, although it's not exclusively progressive, and so it can sometimes I think be treated as ridiculous this idea that conservatives are terrified of a tyranny of the majority that can the, you know that the, the sort of white christians have so much fear but but you talk a lot about that in the book and i think you're good at articulating people's stories to each other so i'd like to hear you talk about this a bit 
progressives look out and they see Republicans hold most state uh, governments. They see Republicans hold the Senate and the Supreme Court and the presidency, despite, you know, um, not winning uh, the public, the popular vote in a bunch of those elections. They see a lot of Republican political power. And so they don't, they think it's ridiculous this idea that Republicans are afraid or have anything to fear. You talk a lot about cultural and corporate power in the book. It's in your scenarios, but also in your analysis as motivating a similar kind of fear. So can you talk a bit about that? What do progressives understand about the mindset of people on the right that is leading to this level of of defensiveness and terror? Yeah. So um, I think one of the things that makes the culture war so toxic is that in important ways, both sides believe that they're losing. In a short version of the way in which a lot of Christians, especially Christian or conservative Christians, conservatives, especially conservative Christians, one of the ways that they are quite fearful of the future is that, let me go back to the 2015 Obergefell oral argument. In in the Obergefell oral argument, I believe it's Justice Alito asks the Obama Solicitor General a question about what if a religious educational institution, I think his 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 uh, example was a religious college, continues to maintain policies that reflect sort of traditional Christian sexual ethics, will its tax exemption be safe? And rather than saying, we're responding immediately, yes, the Solicitor General says, essentially, we'll need to look into this. This is, you know, we'll essentially, we'll have to see. And that sent up an alarm bell that to a lot of uh, conservative Christians that they say, okay, how I choose to educate my children in the deepest values of our faith is not something that could be, should be subject to punitive action from the government in the same way that it subjected, for example, the racist segregation academies to punitive action back in, you know, in the 1980s. That what is it trying to do is you're trying to write us out of the American body politic in the same way that, for example, uh, white nationalists have been rightly written out of the mainstream of American life. You're sort of putting us into that category. And at the same time, when you begin to have uh, a rise of sort of the woke corporate activism, for example, in Indiana, the Battle of Indiana in 2015 was seen as a very concerning moment where what happened is the the government of Indiana passes a Religious Freedom uh, Restoration Act that's very similar to the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And then members of the media went and they've tried to find a business that would say, hey, if would you would you make a meal for a gay wedding? And then found a business that hypothetically wouldn't do it. And then it became instantly nationally vilified. Um, and there were threats of boycotts because of, of major corporations that would boycott the state of Indiana uh, for a Religious Freedom Restoration Act when they wouldn't, for example, boycott doing business in the People's Republic of China. And so the the very sense of it was even beyond the stakes of the Indiana RIFRA itself or a Georgia heartbeat bill or whatever the sort of the state enactment is, that the enmity of these powerful institutions, such as a a large tech company, was such that they would take economic punitive sanctions against fellow citizens that they wouldn't even take against an oppressive authoritarian regime abroad, that that's the level of enmity. And one of the things I talk about in the book is how both sides have now constructed a narrative of hatred. And then what you do is you say, okay, well, these woke corporations have actual enmity towards uh, theologically small-o orthodox conservative Christians, actual enmity 
will take action potentially even against, for example, tax exemptions of the schools where I send my kids. And then you overlay it with a lot of the hyped, very real, but often exaggerated level, for example, of, say, political violence that you see or individual action instances of uh, the politics of personal destruction. So it's almost impossible to overstate how how large the Covington Catholic narrative looms in the minds of a lot of American conservatives as an example of how much they hate you. And I also write, I break down in the book, there are narratives on the left as well that are rooted in real things where you are you say, oh, look at how much they hate me. And so this is sort of a dovetail of policy opposition to religious liberty, a corporate boycott is then amplified by anecdote, say this violent person here, that person who was fired over there, that cancel culture example over here, to create an overarching narrative of these people hate me. And and that overarching narrative of hatred is one that you can hear on both sides. And I open the book by saying, you know, one of the interesting things to me, sad, tragic, horrible, when I served in Iraq was that when the enmity got so out of control, the policy differences that we've talked about to some degree between Sunni and Shia were just beside the point. I mean, people couldn't even really articulate them very well, to be honest, anymore. But they could absolutely articulate each individual act of hatred and atrocity from the other side to the point where the actual political differences between the two sides were were irrelevant. What was relevant was the narrative of of anger and grievance. I, I want to go so back to the point you made a second ago about um, that both sides feel like they're losing. Is is part of that because they just have different power sources right now? That the right's power source is actual politics, um, legislatures, Congress, the Supreme Court, etc., and the left's power center has more to do with. Um, cultural manufacturers, corporations, um, and uh, to some degree, a sense of like demographic change, both secularization and diversification of the country? Is it just that both sides envy the the kind of place and the kind of power the other side seems to have? Oh, I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot to that. I also think that both sides, and I'm much more familiar with the sort of the cultural narrative on the right, um, both sides focus almost exclusively on the areas in which they are losing and take for granted as the natural order of things, the areas in which they win. So if you win, it's because you're right. You know, it's you've win. Well, of course I should win. I'm right. But then when you lose, it's perceived as a, a real grievance. Um, and so on the narrative, on the right, you have this incredible, powerful narrative of nothing but cultural loss. It's almost, you know, it's it, it, that's a, a powerful narrative of primetime Fox, right? Especially Tucker Carlson is just this pervasive sense of cultural loss. And when I talk to um, conservative crowds, there are two things that I can argue that make people really mad. So when I, so I've been opposed to Trump's since, since Trump came down the escalator and it makes people really mad when I speak against Trump, which is to be expected when you talk to a Republican audience and Republicans love him. The other thing is when I argue, it's not as bad as you say it is. And that's almost taken by some people as like a personal affront, um, in part because they use the catastrophe mindset to justify supporting a politician they wouldn't otherwise support. But my colleague Ramesh Panuru said it very well a couple of years ago. He said, America has become 
culturally, and this isn't a whole survey of our politics and culture, but it's become more pro-gay, it's become more pro-life, and it's become more pro-gun. The changes in gun laws in this country since 1986, if you set side by side the changes regarding of, of laws regarding sexual orientation and, and the changes in the laws regarding guns, and with a starting point of, say, 1986, you will see that um, laws regarding LGBT rights have swept the field, just swept the field. And laws regarding gun rights have swept the field, just completely changed. But conservatives will say, um, well, we're losing the culture. Well, which aspect of the culture? Which aspect? And and uh, and so I think that that's one thing that I that is very pervasive, per pervasive as you look at an area in which you have a perception of not winning or a, a, a reality of not winning. And that's the focus. That is the focus. And where you've prevailed, that's just the natural state of things. Of course you should prevail. And so you don't have any real sense of appreciation for progress that you've made. And you have a total fixation on the ground that you've lost. And it creates this permanent siege mentality. I think there's a lot to that. And I think in particular, the, the, the insight that we all focus on where we're losing and it's sort of right into the baseline where we're winning is, is is very profound. There are places where it feels to me these conflicts and collisions are manageable through compromise, through settlement, through more grace and graciousness towards others. And then there are places where it does seem to me that there is going to be a, a fight that people sort of win or, or, or lose. And those are the places that I think are scarier for people in, in 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 the American political system. I mean, you you were using the example a couple minutes ago of an effort to write certain views on sexuality out of the mainstream in the way that hopefully certain views about white supremacy were written out of the mainstream. And sort of, you know, the 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 way you frame that is like that's obviously a a wrong thing to do. And of course, to many of the people who might be on the other end of discrimination or something because of their sexuality or who weren't allowed to marry and who worry about being able to, 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 to live in the way they want to, they will want that to be true, right? They will want to be protected. And so how do you think about that question of there being tensions between tolerance and discrimination? Is it just that people who want to live in a certain way should all just go to blue states? Or how do you see that, that playing out given that you know a lot of our history is oftentimes those things being decided in one way or another? Uh, well, so I, I think in the uh, I think in a very real way, the Supreme Court in this most recent term did something very, very interesting. So what it did is let's put aside the originalist slash textualist analysis of it all and the judicial philosophy of all. Let's just look at what the end result of what happened in the last Supreme Court term. In the last Supreme Court term, what the court did is it said, look, people who uh, LGBT Americans should be free from discrimination. Uh, and they should be broadly free of discrimination in this in the secular workplace to the same extent that Americans are free of discrimination on the basis of race, free of discrimination on the basis of religion, free of discrimination on the basis of sex. And in fact, it was the sex uh, non-discrimination provision that brought LGBT Americans within to the scope of Title VII. And then at the same time, it issued a series of court decisions that solidified this sort of cultural autonomy of very specifically and intentional religious institutions, which to me strikes the pluralist in me as, look, if I was crafting a compromise between very strong competing interests, that's the compromise that I think um, 
accommodates the pluralism of the United States of America pretty well. And in fact, this was something called, it was the guts of it was something called fairness for all as a concept. It originated in Utah as a combination of protection for LGBT rights in the workplace and a protection for the autonomy of religious organizations happening together simultaneously. And to me, you know, that struck me as like putting aside the judicial philosophy of it all, that struck me as a reasonable compromise. And that, you know, the idea to me that, for example, an LGBT American who's working at an insurance agency who's doing a phenomenal job can be fired because they're LGBT, I think that's repugnant. Like, I, I think that's repugnant. And I have zero problem with a uh, regime, a, a, a democratically enacted regime that says, hey, look, um, you know, we... We don't want people fired because of these identity categories. We don't want people punished because of these identity categories. Then at the same time saying, if you have a religious institution that's, um, that's intentionally religious, it's organized as a religious institution, and it's dedicated to teaching a certain uh, biblical morality, that it should have the autonomy to do that and to hire and fire accordingly people who share that view. I think that that is, it's not something that makes uh it's not, you know, there are people who would say, no, those religious institutions should not have that autonomy. And then there are people on the right who would say, hey, absolutely, a, a insurance agency should be able to terminate somebody because they're LGBT. I, I, I don't agree with either of those positions. And I feel like that is a, a reasonable compromise. And it's how it's the kind of compromise that a pluralistic country needs where both people both communities feel that they can have a fundamentally have a home in this land and they can fundamentally be secure that they have the same kinds of economic opportunities and the same kinds of opportunities to form their own uh, institutions that advance their values. So that's the kind of compromise um, that I think accommodates pluralism, um, which doesn't treat it as a zero sum game. Uh, conservative Christians win means gay Americans are always going to lose or gay Americans win means conservative Christians are going to always lose. We can't look at it that way. We have to try to find a spaces of accommodation and spaces where both sides feel that they can build a home. And that's, you know, sort of the core of like this Federalist 10, the flourishing of different American factions. How can we find a way for us all to flourish? It's not easy. It's definitely not easy, but it's an indispensable element of the American experiment. I think that's a good place to come to a close. So let me ask you the question we always used to end the show, which is what are three books you'd recommend to the audience? Okay, so um, I just finished reading. I, I'm going to give this a qualified recommendation. Um, I just finished reading The Splendid and the Vile, the, uh, the story of Churchill um, in the, er, you know, during the, the some of the worst days uh, of the Blitz. Uh, qualified in the sense that if you're looking for a military assessment of what was happening, which a lot of people who read uh, military histories are looking for, not the best, but if for a real slice of life of who Churchill was and how he responded in a time of ultimate distress uh, for his nation, really, really interesting, uh, really fascinating. Um, also, uh, I'm, uh, I would, uh, this isn't really a book, but I love that you, uh, Ezra, I love that you quoted back Madison at me to refute my reliance on Madison. <laughs> I think it is fascinating to reread the Federalist Papers um, and and from the prism of what did they get really right about understanding America and what did they get wrong. And one of the things I think that they got wrong that you actually highlighted pretty effectively is that they got wrong the, the 
extent to which these individual branches would be jealous of their own prerogatives rather than sort of falling into um, uh, falling into the the trap of partisanship. And then the last one, I've actually been racking my brain, honestly, of the the most uh, of the best, uh, the one that uh, uh, I would most recommend. And I actually am going to go with if and it's an old book. It's a nerd book. But we just had a movie trailer for the the movie that I'm most excited for of I, I, I can't remember when. So if you haven't read Dune, now is the time. Frank Herbert's Dune. I actually just reread it about six months ago. And it's just now I'm not recommending of the rest of the series, which I didn't love so much, but that you want to, if you have not read that epic piece of sci-fi fiction, uh, read it. David French, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you to David French for being here. Thank you to Roche Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. You guys are fine shows, Vox Media, podcast production. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.